G'day, and welcome to the Australian Histories podcast. This is episode two, but as episode one was just the series introduction, this one really is the inaugural podcast for the Australian Histories podcast series. And we are going to jump straight in with an overview of an Australian history that will unfold in detail over the next several episodes. We're going to be looking at the sensational story of Ned Kelly and the Kelly Gang. If you'd like a bit more information about the podcast series, please listen to episode one or head to the About section on the Australian Histories podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au And I will just advise you, this Kelly history will unfold over quite a number of episodes, perhaps 15 or so, but for future episodes on other themes and stories, I would expect most to be much more concise. So, let's get started on the overview of the whole Kelly story, and then we'll explore the narrative in much more detail in the following weeks. Most Australians would already know a little about Ned Kelly and the Kelly Gang, who were operating mainly in Victoria's northeast in the 1870s. We might think of him as the country's most notorious or possibly best-loved bushranger. Some Aussies probably know at least a kernel of their story, or have heard poems or bush ballads about the gang. But I would bet for sure that almost all Australians would recognise Ned Kelly's armour, particularly that metal helmet which has now become such an iconic totem in our culture. If the story of the Kelly gang is new to you, I'm certain you'll find it a most interesting tale. There's plenty of interest and drama associated with the gang's last stand and Kelly's demise, but actually the entire Kelly story is a fascinating one, with some very deep and controversial elements, and surprising side notes which you may not have been aware of when you were doing that grade 4 project on bushrangers. So I look forward to going through all of that with you. By the way, if you're unfamiliar with the term bushranger, then I'm guessing you didn't go to school in Oz. In other countries, you might refer to the Kelly Gang as bandits, or outlaws, or highwaymen. Basically, a bushranger will be someone hiding out in the Australian bush, living by criminal means, usually robbing people and perhaps performing feats of daring do. Australia did quite a good line in bushrangers for quite a number of years. Several of them will pop up in the Australian Histories podcasts in the future. The legend of Ned Kelly has had the power over the years of deeply dividing opinion between those who see him as a ruthless antisocial thief and cold-blooded murderer, as Chomley did in his book The True Story of the Kelly Gang of Bushrangers, published in 1900, or as a victim of a corrupt police state and hero of his time, as the author Keneally portrayed him in The Complete Inner History of the Kelly Gang and Their Pursuers originally published in 1929. By the way, when quoting directly from any sources, I will make sure those references are listed on the Australian Histories podcast website for you to follow up if you like, along with a full bibliography for each episode. You can find that list at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. On the face of it, we might consider that in 1900 the gang's pursuits were still pretty raw and within living memory for many readers. 
Perhaps by 1929 the myth had begun to mature, and for more anti-establishment elements to be highlighted. Certainly those involved, still living, will have had time for their own stories to be told. But actually, there were many books written from the very early days, through to the present day, which lean both ways. So I think we can say that opinion has been divided right from the start. Anyway, the polarisation seen early on, in the gang's heyday, is still in evidence amongst many of those with an interest in the bushranger's history. I am aware from talking to locals in Greta, and while I really want to say Greta, it does seem like the locals actually pronounce it Greta, so we'll go with that, or from attending various Kelly gatherings and talks, such as the lectures at the Ned Kelly weekends that used to be hosted in Beechworth, Victoria that emotions can still run high more than 140 years later. Some folks really do not care to have their own interpretations and conclusions about Cali questioned. But what I want to look at is what we actually know about the Cali gang, and I'll leave you to make any judgments about good or bad or hero or villain, to the quiet comfort of your own headspace. So rest assured I will not be pushing a barrow for one end of the spectrum or the other. The truth about who Ned Kelly really was, and what made him into the Kelly we think we know, probably lies somewhere between Chomley's take and Keneally's. But for good or bad, he is now the stuff of legend. Elements of the Kelly's story are now embedded in our language, in albeit old-fashioned phrases such as, as game as Ned Kelly, which the Oxford Living Dictionary describes as meaning audaciously bold. We see it in our art, such as Sidney Nolan's Kelly series, painted in the 1940s. And even amongst our domestic suburban letterboxes all over the country, there's one beaut little example in my own neighbourhood, and I'll post a picture of that on the Australian Histories Podcast website. Really, they are just great to come across. But why do we do that? It's amazing how embedded in our psyche the iconic becomes... And of course, it's represented in our cultural institutions, such as the exhibition at the Victorian State Library, for example. All of these manifestations feed the story into our wider culture and our national identity. Many of the facts about the Kelly outbreak, as it was described at the time, are well documented, and there are some related historic sites across Victoria and New South Wales still accessible. Taking a Kelly tour through the northeast of Victoria can be a fascinating holiday, and of course, many of the areas have come a long way since the 1870s and are now delightful and rewarding holiday destinations in their own right. That many places are accessible is great, but given the status of the Kelly story as an important and remarkable episode in Australian history, it is a sad reflection that a great deal of the sites and paraphernalia associated with the gang are still in private hands, or have been lost to decay, disinterest, and even deliberate destruction. It has really only been in the last several years that our governing and historic bodies have taken much interest in preserving the remaining places and buildings, for example, and this may well have had to do with a moralistic resistance to elevating a bushranger to important historic status. But as far as a story which still captures the imagination, the Kelly saga is already embedded, 
and so preserving that history is important to people. Luckily, the Kelly armour and some of the personal items have been preserved, as there was right from the start a thriving interest in collecting Kelly memorabilia, and many of those items are now on public display. The Police Museum in Melbourne and the State Library of Victoria have excellent exhibits, along with some regional museums, such as Benalla and Beechworth. I became obsessed myself with finding and visiting all the places some years back, and I'm happy to report on a recent revisit to some locations that there has certainly been an increase and a pleasing improvement in the quality of the material at some sites. Indeed, Recent plaques and information boards installed provide good quality information, images and maps to help visitors imagine and reflect on what went on at those various locations. I would highly recommend visits to Avenal Township and the Stringybark Creek sites, for example. If these places are unknown to you, rest assured we'll be discussing them all in context and in more detail in the following episodes. So, in this Bush Rangers-themed podcast focusing on the Kellys. In the following episodes, we will wander through the places and phases of Ned Kelly's life, touching on the background of the gang members, and consider a little of the social context of the era. We can reflect on the influences and circumstances which led up to those notorious actions of Kelly and the gang. That make him so well-known and controversial even today. Some notes on each of the relevant regions and towns will be included, on the Australian Histories Podcast website. Indeed, you may be an armchair traveller or listening to this far away from Oz, but you should be able to get a good idea about the region we're talking about as Ned's story unfolds in the upcoming podcast episodes. I think to cover the Kellys will require several episodes, including today's overview, and then we'll continue on looking at his life in a roughly chronologic order through to Ned's most notorious period, before a final discussion about where this story fits in amongst the many other adventures in Australian histories. So there's quite a saga to cover, and it's all ahead of us. I'm really excited about getting started, and I hope you'll enjoy this as much as me. We'll spend the remainder of the time in this episode now running through a quick synopsis of the whole Kelly story, to put it into context, and then next time we can begin by actually focusing in more detail on the Kelly family and on Ned's early childhood. When Edward Kelly was born at the end of 1854, Victoria was in the middle of a massive gold rush. The old societal structures were under pressure and unlikely to remain static for long. Events on the goldfields and the flow on social upheaval meant agitation for a greater fairness and more representative democracy was being demanded. There was perhaps an expectation that a change was on its way for the ordinary man. Victoria had only recently partitioned off from the old colony of New South Wales in July of 1851, so was perhaps feeling like it was a bit more civilised than that old convict settlement up north. That embryonic feeling of competitive rivalry remains between Sydney and Melbourne to this day, with Sydney having all the bling and Melbourne having all the class. (laughs) Well, so say the Melburnians anyway. I think you can guess where I was born. (laughs) So that's purely subjective, so we better move on. The Victorians needn't have felt too smug, though, 
as they were also, according to Besant and Mellor, quote, largely settled by an underclass of ex-convicts and poor, trying to make a living alongside the fewer but more powerful newly wealthy and the transplanted English elite, unquote. Along with transporting her convicts, the British had also transported her class system and its prejudices. But now, with the miners arriving in huge numbers from all over the world, the prospect of social friction, maybe even change, was high. Ned Kelly's rise to infamy a couple of decades later could be seen as a dramatic, though perhaps not entirely surprising, result of this fizzing social expectation for change in the colonies. Indeed, the famous Eureka Rebellion at Ballarat was occurring just around the time of Ned's birth. The Eureka Uprising, which we will of course look at later in one of the Gold Rush-themed episodes, was a sign that the old guard was going to be challenged, and seismic shifts in politics might follow. Though, in the end, the dust had largely settled back into a comfortable conservatism by the time the Kelly outbreak actually occurred in the 1870s. But getting back to Ned, his story begins in Beveridge, Victoria, then a hamlet just north of Melbourne on the Melbourne to Sydney route. He was born the third child of John and Ellen Kelly. For a time, the family seemed very successful, building up an impressive property portfolio for the day. Before Ned had turned ten, though, the family moved further north to Avenal, where the wheels clearly started to fall off. In the following years, the family appeared to lose many of their assets, and old man Kelly was drinking heavily. He was arrested for stealing a calf, and the sentence he received appears to have broken an already unhealthy man. Soon afterwards he died, leaving Ned as head of the household at just 12 years old. The story goes that a heartbroken Ellen and young Ned did their best to maintain their home for the other six children, but in time she felt the need for closer contact and support from her own family, the Quins. So Ellen packed up the kids, sold off their remaining assets, and headed to the northeast of Victoria to stay with her sister, hoping to find a suitable land selection nearby for her family to settle on. That move reunited Ned with his cousins, the Quinn and the Lloyd boys. By 14, with his meagre education over, Ned took on the heavy task of clearing Ellen's new selection and repairing a building there to shelter them all. It seems amazing to me, living in contemporary Australia, that such a plan seemed viable in any way. A 14-year-old boy clearing the Australian bush, with rudimentary tools, and supporting the family. It just seems an impossible task. But, to their credit, they did at least make a good start, and the family settled into their new life. The majority of selectors in the northeast were, like Ellen, predominantly poor, many Roman Catholic Irish, and the earlier squatters in the area were not very happy about having this rabble moving in on their stock runs. The class war brought out with the British colonialists continued unabated. The squatters thought themselves the bush aristocracy, while the newcomers were just Irish peasants, good for nothing but causing trouble. <laughs> Both groups were not beyond needling each other when the opportunity arose, and were happy to make life a little harder by impounding each other's stock, or by stealing it? There's no question, as we can see from the surviving police records and biographical writings, 
that the Kellys and many of their peers had regular encounters with the law. Most had spent various periods in jail, usually for stock theft or causing some other kind of nuisance, and then, being notorious, they were quite the target for the constabulary, with the local police directed by their commanders to look to them first, should any trouble be reported. The squatters, on the other hand, did appear to have great support from local government and police. They had the money and the influence to have the law work for them, rather than against The system certainly was not a fair or impartial one at the time, and was bound to continue to divide the haves and have-nots, rather than work to bring the society together. This meant the selectors, like the Kellys, believed they had no fair representation, should the squatters take advantage, or act illegally. And so they often felt the best course was to take the law into their own hands, extracting revenge on the squatters in various forms. The young Kellys, and indeed many of the youths of the area, grew into quite a troublesome lot and became known colloquially as the greeter mob. Ned would later claim that this polarised attitude to law enforcement by the police amounted to persecution of the poor and caused him in the end to give up on the system, escalating his thieving from a nuisance level to a large-scale profitable business. If you cannot survive within the system, must you work without it? You can see how such a system, stacked so heavily against them, was not one they could respect. Still, theft is theft, and it certainly got a lot worse. They were a troublesome lot. These first-generation young Irish Australians, tall and lean, skilled bushmen and horsemen, felt that this land was theirs. They were confident and familiar with their bush surroundings, and this sense of familiarity and belonging to country was to become an important element of the Kelly story. What began the Kelly trouble that has escalated into legend was an incident with a local policeman, Constable Fitzpatrick. With an outstanding warrant for Ned and his younger brother Dan on horse theft charges, Fitzpatrick decided to ride out to the Kelly homestead alone and bring them in. He appears to have been keen to pursue the young Kate Kelly too, so the actual motive of his visit is a little uncertain. Arriving at the Kelly homestead, he found only the women folk at home, and he waited there for Dan to return. When Dan did arrive, he agreed to accompany the constable back to the station as soon as he had finished his meal. And it is here that the Fitzpatrick and the Kelly stories diverge. According to the Kellys, Fitzpatrick was drunk during his visit, and while waiting for Dan at the table inside the Kelly home, he attempted to pull young Kate onto his knee. To protect Kate, her mother, Ellen, hit Fitzpatrick with a nearby fireplace shovel, and Dan also jumped up to defend his sister, resulting in a scuffle with the policeman and a firearm discharge. Constable Fitzpatrick claimed instead that while he was waiting patiently for Dan, Ned suddenly burst through the door, grabbed his police gun and fired several shots at him unprovoked, hitting him in the wrist. This was what Fitzpatrick reported to his superior on his arrival at Benalla Police Station later that night. According to the police, the Kelly boys had now made the grievous mistake of attempting to murder a police officer and the law would now come down very heavily on the family. Dan, and possibly Ned if he was there, of course headed for the hills, 
fully expecting the police to come after them. But instead, to the amazement of the Kellys, when the police did arrive at the homestead, instead of heading out to search for the boys, they arrested Alan and others who Fitzpatrick claimed were there, carting them off to prison to be charged with attempted murder. Ned was distraught at his mother's arrest, but the charges were so preposterous that he expected them all to be released in short order, though he did offer to hand himself and Dan in if the charges against his mother and the others were dropped. But Ned and many others in the community were shocked when Ellen and the others were subsequently found guilty and sentenced severely. Such an outcome confirmed for the Kellys and their peers that no fairness or truth could be expected from the police or from the legal system. Historians mark what came to be known as the Kelly outbreak from this time. The Kelly boys, Ned and Dan, were joined up in the hills by friends, where they stayed mining for gold, working a still, and making plans for how they could raise the money for an appeal, to release Alan from jail. The police, still furious at missing the big prize of arresting the long-irritating Ned and Dan, made plans to hunt them out of the hills, and it was this foray into the bush which resulted in a fatal confrontation at Stringybark Creek in October 1878. Three of the four policemen out hunting the Kellys were killed when Ned and the others confronted them. The Kellys and the other two, as yet unknown gang members, had now become police murderers, and this led them all to be declared outlaws. As outlaws, no persons were allowed to harbour, feed or assist them in any way, and could be subject to arrest themselves for doing so. The gang were forced to hide well and to take exceptional care in getting their supplies and information. The local hills were so well known to these Australian-born bushmen that it was pretty easy for them to keep out of sight, but police now kept a very close eye on their family and friends. Obviously the gang would need money to both feed and provision themselves and to provide assistance to their sympathisers, who were now being targeted by the authorities. With the incredibly large reward of £4,000 on their heads, around half a million dollars today, it was important to assist their supporters in every way, to reduce the temptation for those in dire need of yielding to the government reward. The gang first robbed a bank at Euroa with such daring that the public were astounded. Later they planned and executed an even more audacious robbery at Gerildery, over the border in New South Wales again raising their profile as dauntless bushrangers. But this time, one of their main objectives was to ensure their side of the story was made public. They wanted people to hear that Fitzpatrick had lied, that Alan had been unfairly treated, and that natural justice was hard to come by if you were a Kelly. They wanted to convince the public that the loss of life at Stringybark Creek had been justifiable as self-defence, not murder, and that they were not the monsters they were made out to be. The town of Gerildery was chosen because it had a printer, and so here they planned to get their account published and disseminated. The audacious Gerildery hold-up added to the gang's awesome reputation and was moderately financially successful, but the hoped-for media blitz was a failure. The rather naively anticipated public pressure to assist with their cause was not forthcoming. 
Laying low for 18 months, the gang planned a much more elaborate escalation of their confrontation with police and the authorities. Indeed, it was described as an opening salvo in a war against what they saw as a corrupt police, justice system and government. At the very least, Ned's plans for a showdown at Glenrowan were certainly ambitious and were also intentionally murderous. The gang, though always bold and confident, must have known they may not survive such a battle. The famous Kelly armour was prepared for this combat, and it seemed that many other supporters must have been in agreement with Ned's actions and were in place to help. We now know that Glenrowan was to be Kelly's last stand. The rest of the Kelly gang died at the siege and Ned was captured and transported to Melbourne in order to be publicly tried and hung for the murder of the police at Stringybark Creek. But that's the short version of the story. Ned Kelly met his fate, but an enduring legend lived on. From reports of his daring at Euroa, Gerildery and Glenrowan, to his bold comments in court, and then his famous last words, the Kelly legend grew and grew. Australians are still divided on whether Ned should be interpreted as a freedom fighter for his fellow selectors, or as what might today be described as a terrorist, intent on murder and disruption of the state of Victoria. So how should we interpret his motives and assess the character of this iconic figure? Perhaps we need to understand more about Kelly and the times he lived in before considering that conclusion. In the following episodes, we will review all that information in more detail, and I look forward to starting right at the beginning next time, looking at the Kelly family background and Ned's early childhood. Thanks so much for taking the punt and downloading the Australian Histories podcast. I hope you enjoyed the Kelly overview episode today, and that I have tweaked your interest in the Kelly story enough to have you join me again for the next episode in a fortnight. In Episode 3, we will look in some detail at Ned's parents and extended family and at his very early years growing up in Beveridge, Victoria. It's the start of a fascinating story. Remember to check out the supporting material on the Australian Histories podcast webpage at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Remember that's Histories I-E-S. And you are welcome to get in touch with thoughts and comments about this episode via the contact and email links on that webpage. So stay safe and enjoy discovering that weird and wonderful history all around you. I'll talk with you again in two weeks. Cheers! Cheers!